welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Indus. I'm Joe Wallen. And I'm Tushar Shetty. And you join us at a pretty illustrious time for the podcast. So me and Tushar actually met up, uh, was last week, the first time in person since January. Uh, we were both in Goa at the same time. So yeah, quality times for the podcast, Tushar. It was great, great to see you. Oh yeah, absolutely. I was even more delighted that, uh, you know, after the incessant monsoons in Bombay, for some reason, my arrival in Goa heralded three days of uninterrupted sun, which just confirms I have holy powers. <laughs> Indeed, it was a pretty, a pretty great couple, couple of days, and we're back to back to the rains again now. But um, yes, it was, it was lovely, and yeah, both, both back to work this week. But uh, nice to have, nice to have a bit of a, bit of a break with with the monsoon. And there's always lots, lots going on in the news this week. I mean, I think. Nidishar discussed before the, the podcast that we were going to hold out and do a bit of a, an India election special or a bit of a curtain raiser for next week's episode. I mean, there's, there's the big news today is that a plethora of India's largest opposition parties from Congress, AP, to, to the CMCM meeting in, in Bangalore with a view to setting up an opposition coalition to challenge the BJP. But we wanted to do this topic justice. Um, we wanted to look at the, U, the UCC as well. So we're, we're going to hold for that for, for, for next episode. Um, and it's, what, what have you been following this week, Tushar? So, Joe, I'm I'm sure you have been following. We recently have uh, attempted another moonshot. Uh, so, I've been watching these live feeds of Chandrayaan three, the Moon Mission three. As you might know, the last Moon Mission, which I believe happened in 2019, didn't go as well. And I've been reading reports that uh, there was some pressure on the ISRO, uh, that's Indian Space uh, Research Organization, or officials to try and get it up uh, sooner than they were ready, which ended, unfortunately, in a crash landing on the moon. But I believe this one's going to be more successful. They've had a lot more tests. You know, they've certainly, um, you know, invested their time into it. And I think, Joe, for the first time, it there seems to be a nationwide excitement or enthusiasm, which uh, possibly existed before, but it was a lot more visible uh, this time around. Uh, were you following the uh, news about that? Yeah, it's, it's it's really really exciting. Um, but if I had some friends visiting from from the UK on on the day of the launch, uh, and they said that there was a live a live viewing party in in the lobby of their hotel in, in Mumbai, which gives uh, gives an idea of the excitement uh, around the event. But as you say, yes, there was a, a prior launch in 2019, uh, a soft landing on, on the or attempted soft landing on the moon's uh, south pole, uh, which was unsuccessful. Um, so this is the the second attempt. I mean, if, if India is successful, it would become only the fourth country after the former USSR, China, and, and the US to, to achieve such a feat. So it is a pretty significant moment uh, in, in the space race as, as such. Um, it, it's no secret that India would like to attract more investment into its, its space industry. Uh, and there's a view that a lot of firms are holding out and looking for this kind of confirmation of quality uh, that this, this projected landing could, could provide. Um, it is a really exciting moment. I believe that we... We should find out by August 24th whether it's been a success or not. So yeah, keep your eyes on that well. Absolutely. And I think my the favorite part that uh, I saw was, uh, or the favorite thing about this was on Twitter, uh, I saw a tweet that said, can't wait for British politicians to start asking why we send India so much aid if, can, if they can afford moon missions. Uh, so this has been a thing. Uh, even the uh, Mars mission, I remember there were some politicians, particularly in the UK, asking why do we send so much aid to India? But nonetheless, I mean, this is a great achievement for India. And I think definitely um, a feather in their cap for their global ambitions. But Joe, you've been covering um, some international stories that have to do with China, haven't you? So what have you been following? 
Yes, I mean the one I think that's gone a bit under the radar over, over the last week. But I think it has got will have a significant um, impact. I think in the years to come, it was the fact that the Dalai Lama was back in the news. Um, not only celebrating his 88th birthday, but this milestone coincided with a meeting with the U.S. Special Coordinator for Tibetan Issues, Uzoya. Um, he's also the Under Secretary for Civilian Security, Democracy, and Human Rights. So the Dalai Lama was in Delhi uh, for, for this meeting. And now the official line was that the meeting was about preserving Tibetan culture, uh, but unsurprisingly, it attracted ire from from neighboring China. Um, the Chinese embassy in, in New Delhi sent a, pr- a pretty strongly worded tweet saying that China firmly opposes any form of contact between foreign officials, um, describing the Dalai Lama as a Tibetan independence force uh, and was, you know, he'd long been engaging in anti-China separatist activities. Um, you know, that seems to be as far as the row went on. Um, but I think it brings the spiritual leader of Buddhism, who's, who's currently exiled in Dharamshala, which is a town in northern India, which also hosts the Tibetan government and exile back into focus. Um, now, I think what's significant about the story is, is that uh, with the Dalai Lama's advancing years, you know, as for Buddhist belief, the current Dalai Lama will be reincarnated after his death and his successor will be chosen by the Tibetan government in exile in India and senior Tibetan Buddhists. Now, both the the US and China are are watching this process keenly uh, and certainly according to to my sources, strongly trying to influence the succession process depending on on who you read. Um, You know, it's no secret that China would like to see the next Dalai Lama appointed, you know, who's pro-Tibet remaining as part of China. Um, there's a lot of rumors or stories that China's going to appoint its own Dalai Lama. Um, while the US would, would obviously like the opposite to, to happen, from what we can tell, and, and would like the next Dalai Lama again to, to continue the succession of, of figureheads kind of in exile in India. So, so I think it's something really to keep an eye on because there is going to be a big flare up uh, as and when you know, the new Dalai Lama is, is appointed. Um, and I think as, you know, as the current figure uh, you know, continues to increase in age. We're, we're going to see more and more rhetoric around this, more and more debate around this. You know, I, I was having a conversation with with a good friend actually uh, in in China um, who works as a political analyst there, and, and uh, they were suggesting that you know Beijing might put forward some sort of conditions or terms on the new Dalai Lama that if India doesn't let China appoint its own figurehead, you know, it might do X or Y. Um, you know, certainly something, really something to keep an eye on on that one. And I think we'll see it kind of more commonplace in the news over the upcoming years. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, people don't maybe think about this all the time, but Buddhism is also an interesting area of cultural influence that India might be able to leverage, uh, particularly in East Asia. I mean, apart from China, uh, you have considerable number of Buddhists in Japan, South Korea, Thailand, uh, a lot of Southeast uh, Asian nations. And it would be interesting to see if the succession crisis sort of drew a line between the ostensibly Buddhist world. And it'd be interesting to see if India used that in conjunction with its Act East policy, uh, you know, to develop its relations with its Asian neighbors. We've seen already some degree of ramp up between or indications of ramp up between ties uh, between India and Taiwan. Taiwan opening its first, I guess, uh, de facto consulate uh, in Bombay a couple of weeks ago, or at least uh, announcing that they would a couple of weeks ago. So definitely something to watch. But speaking of more domestic issues, Joe, you mentioned the opposition unity uh, rally or meeting that's happening right now uh, in Bangalore. And I thought it'd be an interesting way to dive into one of the topics about Indian democracy that I think is underappreciated to a lot of non-Indian listeners. 
So one of the weirdest things, Joe, that hit me when I was traveling to Goa is how diverse India actually is that when you move to the state right across from you or the neighboring state, you're confronted with a completely different language and script sometimes. I mean, if I move north in the state of Gujarat or south to the state of Karnataka, uh, at some point when I'm driving down the highway, I can't understand the signs or even the people anymore. So you can still find people who understand English or Hindi across the nation, as you know, but it's a lot like when you're traveling in Europe. You know, you can find people, but it's not guaranteed. And the thing is, I thought it would be fascinating to understand why federalism in India is important for his democracy so that our listeners can contextualize what's happening with Modi and his central government and its ostensible authoritarianism uh, in a broader Indian context. So as you might know, India is divided into 28 states. We used to have 29, but we kind of lost Kashmir in 2019. It was divided into union territories. And the union territories, which are smaller states that are sort of administered centrally from Delhi. And unlike states in other democracies, because Indian states are extraordinarily diverse, they're also extremely important because uh, some states like Maharashtra, my home state, is home to more than 120 million people. And it's not even the largest state in India. So the reason why these states are so vital to Indian democracy, firstly, is because the power of the government is shared between the central government and the states. Several key areas like education, policing and public health are controlled and administered by state governments. So to implement any major policy in India, you're going to have to get the consent and cooperation of state governments. Secondly, even the central legislature, while the lower house is elected in the general elections, the parliamentary elections, much like UK and Canada, for instance, the upper house, the delegates are chosen by state representatives. So even to pass legislation, you kind of need to bring a good chunk of the states and the parties there on board. This gives rise to something I believe is unique to Indian democracy, which is the advent of regional parties. Now, regional parties are essentially political parties that are concentrated largely to one state, and they usually have appeal amongst a specific caste or cultural vote bank. Even if these parties can form a government in the state on their own, they're sometimes quite indispensable to form governments in the center or to form governments in the state. And this is where you see a lot of the problems arising in the way Indian democracy functions, particularly under strong central governments like Modi, like the BJP. So in order to bring these regional parties on board, central governments have a variety of methods that they use. Some of these are constitutional and seen all over the world. For instance, promising particular ministries or particular portfolios to key members of regional parties in order to elicit their support. But lately, you've been seeing a lot of, let's say, unconstitutional approaches. For instance, the position of governor, which is a ceremonial appointment by the central government to oversee state politics. These governors are supposed to be apolitical, but uh, you see the BJP using their governors to interfere in state politics increasingly. The other way that central government is targeting state and regional parties is by using central agencies like, let's say, the, the Enforcement Directorate, the CBI, the Narcotics Control Bureau, basically bodies assigned to police, corruption, financial transactions, uh, drugs, etc. And you see cases being levied against certain politicians who don't toe the line. So, Joe, in this context, I think the meeting of opposition parties in Bangalore is particularly important because if you can't cobble together a coalition for the general election, it's a lot harder for you to come to power. Now, we know that Mr. Modi's uh, two elections have bucked this trend and the BJP has come to power alone uh, with the majority. But in his third term, as opposition parties are getting increasingly consolidated and increasingly worried about their own future with an increasingly aggressive BJP, 
I think this is definitely one to watch. And let's see if this coalition of parties can actually come together to pose a real threat to the BJP in 2024. It's, it's fascinating stuff, and I, I think it's something that, that a lot of our listeners perhaps uh, aren't aware of, and I have to say, very well explained on, on, on quite, a, quite a complicated topic there. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, for example, where I come from in, in the UK, originally, it, it's just completely alien uh, to, to us, you know, kind of the, the state system, as you say, you know, and, and quite the, the level of, of power that is uh, devolved. And we've seen kind of quite fierce debates recently between Arvind Kejriwal, who's the chief minister in Delhi, um, and India's home ministry about who can, who controls the police in, in Delhi. And it is it is something that we we hear about a lot a lot here, and will continue to do so. You know, certainly this opposition alliance is I mean, fairly unprecedented in, in recent times in, in India. We didn't see it in the last last couple of elections, um, and the prospect of having kind of your Amali Kargan Kaje, you know, Mamata Banerjee, uh, you know, Kejriwal, again, I just mentioned, you know, all coming together to take on the BJP. It's, um, it kind of feels almost a little bit Mar- Marvel franchise-esque, but it, it seems to be, like it could be a reality. Um, but as I say, I, th- I think we're keen to, keen to look into this in a bit more detail next week, because it is, you know, I think it is the issue that's going to define, define next year's elections. And um, yeah, a really fascinating one. So uh, yeah, a brilliant, brilliant taste of that from, uh, from Mr. Shetty. Yeah, onwards to to the topic this week. So it's one that we wanted to look at on on the podcast for for a while. I think the news cycle in in South Asia has been, as, as always, a, a pretty pretty relentless. Um, but one that I'm certainly very passionate about personally. Um, you know, we can you cast your eyes about 2017, and and, and me and my security forces have begun a wave of, of rape, murder, and arson against the country's Muslim Rohingya minority um, that is currently being subject to a genocide investigation at the ICC, the International Criminal Court. Um, and is widely seen around the world as, as being ethnic cleansing. Now, around one million Rohingya fled, fearing their lives to neighboring Bangladesh, where they still live today in the world's largest refugee camp in Cox's Bazaar. Now, Bangladesh's ruling Awami League um, has been struggling of late when, it, when we look at its finances or the economic situation of Bangladesh, long heralded, or, or certainly in recent times, as South Asia's major success story. Bangladesh recently approached the IMF for funding. Um, you know, one of one of many South Asian countries that have struggled in the wake of the COVID pandemic, in the wake of the war in Ukraine. You know, Bangladesh or the, the Army League certainly has, has viewed hosting the Rohingya as, as a major inconvenience. Um, and if anything, it has since made their already dire living conditions in Cox's Bazaar much, much worse, particularly over the last 12 to 18 months. So as per the Human Rights Watch in 2022, the authorities have made life impossible for the Rohingya and Cox's Bazaar, with a series of policies that include closing schools and limiting their movement. And meanwhile, the security situation in the camps continue to deteriorate as armed Rohingya groups, uh, the Bangladesh Security Forces, and insurgents from Myanmar battle for control. At least 40 Rohingya were killed last year, uh, mainly community leaders, and the number of those killed has already reached 48 this year, although the Rohingya say that it is far higher than this. So last Thursday, while the International Criminal Court's Chief Prosecutor, Karim Khan, was on a visit to the Kakam to collect evidence, six Rohingya were killed in a horrific day of, of fighting. You know, the situation really is desperate and has been compounded by the fact that many international aid agencies, including the World Food Programme, have had to scale back funding for, for the camp or its residents this year. Now, five times as many Rohingya fled from Cox's Bazaar in 2022 by boats, desperately trying to reach Malaysia, Indonesia, if you know, well, negotiations over their repatriation back to Myanmar have gone no further. But we hear a lot in the news about uh, migrants and refugees crossing 
Mediterranean to Europe, but this is a similar situation and in many instances, a much more desperate situation happening in the Indian Ocean, but we hear far less about it. You know, a small delegation of Rohingya visited their former homes in May, um, but appear reluctant to return. You know, the, the authorities in Myanmar are refusing to, to give them citizenship, and it seems that they would be housed in villages and wouldn't be able to leave. So conditions that, that mirror what they faced in, in Cox's Bazaar for many years now. I thought we were both keen to, to, to kind of discuss this as our topic on the podcast this week, because we really feel it's something that, that's fallen from the news headlines and deserves a lot more coverage and a lot more awareness. And with that instance, we'd, we'd be keen to introduce our, our first guest to the podcast this week, who'd like to remain anonymous. They're a leading Rohingya activist based in Cox's Bazaar, who've been living in the camp for many years. It, it's incredibly rare to, to have direct insight from inside Cox's Bazaar. You know, communications are very, very difficult. Um, there's a crackdown on those that do speak to the media. Uh, so to have someone to speak about what day-to-day life is, is like there, it's, it's, it's very moving and powerful. Um, but we felt it was necessary to, to really get across the gravity of the situation. Thank you for doing this interview with Beyond the Indus. So you've requested to have your name withheld uh, because of the obvious security risks you face. But I think I can describe you as someone from the Rohingya community, an activist fighting for better conditions and more awareness about the plight of your people. And you're presently living in the world's largest refugee camp in Cox's Bazar, Bangladesh. Um, could you start by maybe describing the situation there right now? What are the conditions like? Uh, we've been hearing reports of criminal organizations increasing their activity in the camps. Uh, are these reports true? Actually, the clash between the criminal organization has claimed the life of innocent refugees. Since the situation in the camp has gotten so bad, the number of killing, kidnappings, and blackmailing has already risen. Even within the barbed wire and closed refugee camp, the Rohingya are subject to such a stringent restriction on movement. No one can move anywhere since they are all trapped in a terrible scenario for fear of being killed, abducted, or robbed by the thugs. Also, the WP's food cars caused the majority of refugees to eat poorly balanced meals. At the same time, malnutrition and its repercussion from communicable disease are particularly problematic for refugees and the elderly people. Another big issue that refugee children is facing is, uh, you know, the lack of access to high quality education. So you've mentioned a few things, increase in the criminal activity, violence, uh, malnutrition, kids being deprived of basic facilities. And I, I guess my question is, have things always been this bad in the camps? Or has the situation deteriorated considerably in the past few years? And what's caused this deterioration and this uptick in violence? Refugee life is not easy. You know, most of the time we faced unbearable, uh, you know, agony in our life. Since we are refugees, some of the things has been so bad since the last four or five years. Of them, to say a few, WP food assistance has been substantially decreased twice within three months, causing refugees to find other means of supporting themselves. While this is ongoing, certain, you know, miscreants inside and outside the camp attempting to take advantage of the helpless Rohingya refugees for their own political benefit. 
and power in the clan by paying them some money, which result in the killings of innocent people. So there are increasing reports of Rohingya refugees choosing to flee the camps in Cox's Bazaar, some of them attempting to return home to Myanmar, uh, despite the ongoing violence there, others that are trying to flee to different countries. This is increasingly making them targets uh, for human traffickers. So could you explain why Rohingya people at this point are choosing to flee Bangladesh and the camps there? And how are human traffickers taking advantage of this? When the, uh, the Rohingya refugee camp turned into a literal hell for them due to the extremely dangerous and deteriorating condition here, so they made the decision to live and risk their lives in any possible way. Many refugees become vulnerable in the camp due to the excessive suffering, poverty, and unpredictability of their fishers to go back home to Myanmar, which make them easy prey for human traffickers. Truthfully, there are a lot of human traffickers in the camp and in Myanmar who uh, persuade the refugees by giving false permits. And while traveling to Malaysia and like Indonesia, the trafficker harass them, especially girls, and hold them hostage for an exorbitant ransom. The Rohingya crisis has endured for several years now, and it doesn't seem like things are going to improve anytime soon, um, especially with the military junta government in Myanmar right now. For my final question, as a representative of the Rohingya people, what message do you have for the international community? We have listeners from all over the world. Um, tell us what can the international community do to help ease the suffering of the Rohingya people? The international community must not forget our genocide survivor. They should provide humanitarian support for the Rohingya refugees as long as we can go back to our country with nationality, safety and security. Too much has been suffered by our people for just the citizenship right. Honestly speaking, my father and forefather died with the hope of holding citizenship right in their hands. Now it's me and my children hoping for the same thing, uh, suffering the same tragedies. All in all, I don't want my children suffer this thing in their life. It's clear that the military junta will never take the Rohingya back from Bangladesh by giving their nationality, their citizenship right back. And the military will just kill the Rohingya people in the way they have been doing for long decades if they can take even a single Rohingya back from Bangladesh without safety and security and national, uh, citizenship right. So that to save the Rohingya people from suffering another genocide in their lives, the most powerful countries in the world, like the United States, India, China, and the EU countries must play a major role. Give the military a strong pressure to restore our citizenship right back as early as possible. It's now been six years in the camp, but it's too long for us. How many more years do we have to wait for our identity? How many more people have to be died in the sea to get our identity? After all, it's time to find a sustainable solution for the Rohingya crisis. And youths like us should be given the opportunity to study higher education to be able to become professional. 
so that we can liberate our country with our people. So now to welcome our second guest to the podcast, Matthew Smith. Matthew is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Fortify Rides, one of the world's leading human rights organizations, which regularly collaborates with the United Nations and governments around the world, and has been active in Myanmar since 2013. A Harvard fellow, Matthew's work has exposed genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, multi-billion dollar corruption, and other human rights violations, to name but a few. Welcome to the podcast, Matthew, uh, and how are you? Thank you so much, Joe. Great to be here. Appreciate it. So Matthew, just before we begin, um, maybe it's a good idea to give our listeners an idea about what the Rohingya refugee crisis is all about. You know, having stayed in Europe for the past few years, uh, you hear a lot more about, say, the crises in Syria or the, the Middle Eastern refugee crises. But a lot of people don't have an idea about this almost genocide going on um, in the other part of the world. So maybe just to start with, could you give our listeners a brief overview about what the Rohingya crisis is all about and how it started? Sure. Uh, you know, this is a, an ethnic and religious minority uh, from Myanmar. And they've been experiencing persecution from the Myanmar military and, and and successive governments in Myanmar for decades. The persecution of the Rohingya increased significantly in 2016 and 2017 with um, uh, in response to attacks by uh, some Rohingya militants against the Myanmar authorities. Um, the Myanmar military responded with massive, disproportionate uh, violence and essentially burned down hundreds of villages, um, raped, killed, um, tortured, disappeared uh, Rohingya en masse, and essentially forced upwards of a million uh, Rohingya to flee into Bangladesh. Uh, And there were already uh, anywhere between 250,000 to 500,000 Rohingya already living uh, in squalid camps in Bangladesh's Cox's Bazar district. And uh, and then with that outflow of, of refugees in, in 2016 and 2017, the situation at the camp has become, of course, uh, a, a much bigger phenomenon. This crisis has been going on uh, for several years now. But last year, uh, we saw the number of Rohingya fleeing away from Cox's Bazaar by boat, uh, increasing by fivefold. What do you think this is driving this exodus? Uh, how have conditions in Cox's Bazaar deteriorated? And why has funding from some NGOs like the WFP been reduced? Yeah, you know, this sadly, this is a, a, a situation that has been occurring annually. Um, you know, what is sometimes referred to as the, the quote unquote sailing season. Um, there are transnational criminal syndicates, uh, human trafficking syndicates that have been operational in the camps in Myanmar, as well as in the camps of Bangladesh, as well as in Myanmar and in other countries within ASEAN, um, and in some cases colluding with the authorities in, in various places. Uh, even going back to you know 2012 to 2015, we had documented uh, the uh, trafficking of upwards of 170,000 Rohingya from Bangladesh and from Myanmar to Thailand and Malaysia. They were subjected to heinous crimes. Uh, mass atrocity crimes, in fact, international crimes, um, and and but but part of what still drives this, there are a few reasons. Part part of what still drives the the um, the the exodus, the annual exodus, is a lack of accountability on these uh, um, criminal syndicates that are 
essentially trafficking Rohingya, um, deceiving them to get to board boats and then holding them for ransom and committing crimes against them. But, but beyond that, you know, many Rohingya just see no future in Bangladesh. Um, they're, they're essentially trapped in these camps. Um, they're denied um, the possibility of returning to Myanmar in any sort of safe uh, or, or, or um, dignified fashion. Um, and beyond that, you know, Rohingya are denied, the Bangladesh authorities still deny the Rohingya the, the, the right to work so they can't earn a livelihood. Um, they're dependent on handouts from humanitarian organizations. And uh, as you alluded to, those those handouts are decreasing significantly. So there's a food crisis right now happening in the camps. And the World Food Program is, has been forced to um, cut food rations significantly. And so now, you know, you have an entire population of people uh, that are dealing with uh, things like malnourishment on a much bigger scale. Um, and so all of these things combined with, you know, the denial of freedom of movement, um, as well as the increased activity of Rohingya militants in the camps that are making life miserable uh, for Rohingya, uh, committing killings, disappearances, torture, and other types of violations with impunity. So when you combine all of these um, aspects of, of what the Rohingya are surviving or attempting to survive in Bangladesh, um, sadly, it's no surprise that, that people would be attempting to flee. We just spoke to um, a Rohingya activist in Cox's Bazaar who wanted to be unnamed. And he specifically mentioned and pointing to the worsening security situation in the camps. Uh, more Rohingya have been killed in the first six months of this year than the whole of 2022. So maybe you could talk about these Rohingya militants in the camps. Uh, or what is driving this violence um, and who's behind it? Yeah, there's, there's an unfortunate phenomenon that's been observed through history, arguably, uh, of victims of crimes or of persecution mirroring the behavior of their perpetrators. And unfortunately, this is this is the type of scenario we're, we're seeing unfold in the camps. Um, there are several uh, Rohingya-led militant groups. The Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army is, um, is uh, the, the largest of these groups. Um, and uh, they purport to be fighting for Rohingya freedom, uh, but in reality, they're committing very serious human rights violations against their own people in the camps. We're documenting killings, we're documenting torture, we're documenting threats and harassment. Um, they're particularly vicious with regard to young women who, uh, young Rohingya women who, who uh, you know, exercise their right to freedom of expression or want to work for humanitarian organizations, for example. So these are. Um, these are groups that uh, that are wreaking havoc. Um, they're a menace to Rohingya society in the camps. Um, and uh, unfortunately, the Bangladesh authorities have not done nearly enough to provide a secure and safe place for Rohingya in the camps. And I should say too, this is this is sadly, this has been uh, part and parcel to Bangladesh strategy, if you will, over many years. Um, there are even Bangladesh officials going on record year many years ago talking about how uh, you know they should not be making the situation too comfortable for Rohingya because they don't want them to stay in Bangladesh. And so, from our perspective, this is part of that uh, that really perverse, inhumane strategy of um, failing to protect the Rohingya refugee population. Conditions certainly seem to have really deteriorated over the past year. I mean, something that 
during my time at the Telegraph, we we reported on or, or attempted to report on quite extensively. And something that really concerned me, I think, particularly um, over the last twelve to eighteen months, were, were increasing limit, limits on, on movements uh, for those in the camps. Um, you know, activists would regularly tell me that the heavily pregnant women or you know unwell children would be unable to access healthcare. It would be very difficult for them to move around to to reach to reach centres um, where they could get the care they needed. Um, you know, it really is multifaceted when we come to the, the challenges that the Rohingya face uh, in, in Cox's Bazaar. And now in March, a, a Rohingya delegation uh, was allowed to visit Myanmar as part of the bilateral discussions between Myanmar and Bangladesh over the return or potential return of the community. Now, most of the Rohingya community seem opposed to what was offered or found on the visit. Um, you know, the model villages weren't hospitable. They were told they wouldn't be given full citizenship in Myanmar. You know, the UN has repeatedly said that conditions in Myanmar are not right or, or not ready for their repatriation. I mean, what are the conditions like today for, for members of the Rohingya community that remain in Myanmar? And do you think the repatriation of the community is likely to happen anytime soon? Unfortunately, I, we don't see uh, repatriation uh, happening anytime soon. And, and part of the reason for that is that the same military that led and orchestrated uh, the genocidal attacks on the Rohingya in 2016 and 2017. This is the same military that uh, um, uh, took, took, attempted to take control of the entire country through its uh, bloody coup d'etat on uh, February 1st, 2021. So um, this is a military that uh, at present, as we speak, is uh, carrying out a widespread and systematic attack against the civilian population throughout the entire country. Um, this includes against the Rohingya. It includes against the, the ethnic Rakhine or, or Arakanese population in Rakhine State. Um, and so uh, that, uh, of course, makes any prospect for a safe, dignified, and voluntary return, um, which are the elements of, um, of, of reasonable returns for, for refugees in these situations. It makes, those, it makes that impossible. Um, but beyond that, you know, Rohingya and Rakhine State right now are are still dealing with uh, some of the same violations they've been dealing with for many years. They're denied freedom of movement. They're effectively confined to their villages in, in Rakhine State. They're still denied access to citizenship rights. They're still facing violence as a matter of daily survival. Um, the National Unity Government of Myanmar um, which of course formed after the coup in opposition to the coup. And this this is a government comprising uh, elected officials and others um, that are have an interest in, in of course, um, bringing democracy to, to Myanmar. They're, they're in, in many ways leading the revolution that's, that's ongoing in the country. They have uh, done an about face uh, with regard to their Rohingya policy, which has been very inspiring. The national unity government has committed itself to ensuring justice and accountability for the Rohingya people. Um, it has committed itself to ensuring uh, citizenship uh, for Rohingya people. But you know, the 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 as of right now, um, those commitments are very important. But as of right now, there still is essentially this nationwide attack that the Myanmar military is is carrying out. Um, there's armed conflict happening. Uh, the Arakan army uh, is. A non-state armed group, um, an ethnic armed group, rather ethnic uh, 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 army, essentially fighting the revolution in Myanmar, and the war between the Arakan army and the Myanmar military often um, uh, 
wreaks havoc on the civilian population. And so this this includes the Rohingya population. This includes the, the ethnic Rakhine and, and some of the other smaller ethnic groups that uh, that uh, call Rakhine State their home. So overall, the conditions, unfortunately, are, are really not ripe for this. Um, I will just add, though, that you know the Myanmar military is really intent on attempting to return Rohingya to Myanmar because of an ongoing case at the International Court of Justice. There's a genocide trial um, that uh, the the military junta is facing in The Hague right now, and and part of uh, part of what they want to do is demonstrate to the court um, that they have an interest in protecting the Rohingya right to return. Uh, it's a farce, um, and 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 certainly we don't have any expectation that uh, the the judges at the International Court of Justice will will in any way look favorably upon that scenario. So it brings me uh, on to my next question, which is the last week, the International Criminal Court's Chief Prosecutor, Karim Khan, visited Cox's Bazaar to, to collect evidence uh, in, in the case that you mentioned. And Mr. Khan has said that we must, you know, he gave quite a strongly worded statement after his visit saying we must not forget the Rohingya. Um, I think as we mentioned previously on the podcast, there were, there were six Rohingya killed on the same day that he visited. Um, you know, I think Mr. Khan saw conditions, also the conditions kind of very upfront. Um, but given that the ICC's investigations into genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity involving the Rohingya was ordered back in 2019, why has it taken so long for, for the ICC to collect evidence? Um, and could you give us a bit of an overview of, of other cases against the Myanmar military? The, the wheels of international justice move tremendously slow. Uh, we know that. Um, and, you know, we all have an interest, including those working at the International Criminal Court. We all have an interest in in, in those wheels speeding up. And, and we have an interest in, in, in international justice becoming more efficient. The ICC is an indispensable institution in our world, um, but uh, it is moving incredibly slow with regard to this. Uh, technically, the ICC is not actually investigating uh, genocide in, in Myanmar. Um, and that's one of the political hurdles that I think uh, must be overcome. The court, in two, back in 2019, the court uh, basically obtained jurisdiction to investigate and possibly prosecute forced deportation specifically as a crime against humanity. Um, part of the reason for that is, you know, Myanmar is not a state party to the ICC, uh, but Bangladesh is. And Forced deportation is a crime that necessarily involves two countries. So, so in short, that's basically how the court obtained jurisdiction to uh, investigate atrocity crimes against the Rohingya um, via Bangladesh, because Bangladesh is a state party to the court. Uh, the National Unity Government of Myanmar did issue what's known as a 12.3 declaration. And what this, this was highly significant. And what this actually means is that the National Unity Government, uh, which of course again is is in opposition to the Myanmar military's illegal uh, criminal regime, uh, they've essentially uh, ceded jurisdiction to the court to investigate and prosecute mass atrocity crimes, all ma any manner of mass atrocity crimes occurring in Myanmar over the course of many years. So, the onus right now is really on the prosecutor at the ICC to pick up that twelve three declaration and launch a full investigation and. He He's not doing that right now, and so member states, uh, you know, states, state, state parties to the International Criminal Court 
really should contact the prosecutor, refer the situation in Myanmar to the prosecutor. That is essentially how um, how the investigation in Ukraine uh, launched. And there's a similar dynamic at play. And we're not seeing the same level of attention to the atrocities happening in Myanmar as we are in these other scenarios. So yeah, so that's, that's essentially the, uh, the situation, at least at, as we see it. And I want to, to mention um, the Basin Char, uh, Basin Char, sorry, um, which is, I'd better describe it as a, a sort of a low-lying uh, silt island uh, in the Bay of, uh, Bay of Bengal, um, a part of the world which is, which is prone to, to cyclones and, and adverse weather. Um, well, I'm rather nervous to be flying over next week uh, in the middle, middle of the monsoon. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, it's been called Prison Island by Human Rights Watch. Thousands of the Rohingya have been resettled also to Basin Shah, and this has been heavily criticized, saying that not only is island itself unsuitable for, for human habitation, but you know, the conditions or, or infrastructure that's been built there is, is unsuitable, that we've seen families um, split up, you know, so mothers, fathers, children, um, you know, some in Cultures Bazaar, some taken to, to Basin Char. You know, this is a very contentious, very, very contentious policy uh, from the Bangladeshi authorities. I mean, what are the concerns about living conditions there? Um, you know, and are Rohingya being forced to relocate to this island uh, by the Bangladeshi authorities? Yeah, thanks for that. We we have at Fortify Rates, we have documented uh, coercive practices uh, around uh, Bangladesh authorities relocating Rohingya refugees from the mainland camps to the island. Um, the situation has evolved over time. That uh, it's still problematic for a number of reasons. There, For example, there's no formal appeal process if a person on Boston Char wants to leave the island once they arrive. Um, and, and this, of course, makes their stay on Boston Char uh, not voluntary. Um, and so it also makes Rohingya feel like they're effectively detained on the island with no ability to go back uh, formally with the, with the permission from the authorities. So um, there, there is the ability for uh, Rohingya Ambassador Char to go and visit the mainland camp. This was a, this was a change, a welcomed change uh, that came some time ago. Um, generally, they can visit for two to three weeks, but approvals take time. Uh, some Rohingya that we've spoken with have, have been a, a, attempting to get approval to go back to the mainland camps to visit with their families and with their communities. Uh, and they've been waiting for, for months and months on end for that approval. It's also worth mentioning that this is not freedom of movement. Um, freedom of movement is freedom of movement. And when you have to seek approval from the state for you know uh, a, a, a visit to another part of the camps that would effectively only last a couple of weeks, uh, this is of course not what we mean when we when we talk about the human right to freedom of freedom of movement, which of course does extend to refugees as well. Um, we have documented cases uh, of also people who Rohingya who are on the islands who uh, or who are on Basinchar Island rather and who have been arrested for attempting to leave the island. And so the, these are the types of things that are that are taking place there. Uh, it's also worth mentioning, I think, that um, delivering services, humanitarian services on Basinchar is very expensive uh, for humanitarian groups, and so. You know, in this context of pretty drastic food cuts that the World Food Program has made, uh, due as they say to a lack of funding, uh, to be spending, you know, larger amounts of, of resources to deliver services on Boston Char 
uh, you know, really doesn't, doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of, of sense. But the fact of the matter remains that the island, the island is there now. There are Rohingya there. Uh, but there are a lot of things that the Bangladesh authorities can and should do to not only protect Rohingya from violence, but also to respect their rights as refugees. These camps, whether it's Basin Char, whether it's the mainland camps, are, are really not the future for the Rohingya people. Um, this is a group of people, a population of people that's been persecuted for far too long. Uh, and you know they deserve rights. They deserve to have a future where they can access education, where they can access livelihood um, and, and exercise their rights. And unfortunately, right now, the conditions are not conducive to any of that. So, Matthew, as our final question, um, what possible solutions are there for the Rohingya? Is it possible that, uh, do you foresee a return to Myanmar uh, for them? Uh, can the authorities be pressured or convinced uh, to facilitate that? And what do you think is likely to happen in the interim? Several years ago, we collected some data. We did a, a participatory uh, action research project with a team of uh, uh, brilliant Rohingya researchers in the camps who collected data. They designed the questions. They collected data, uh, and and we released it in their report called "Torture in My Mind." And one of the um, one of the data points in that survey uh, that the Rohingya conducted in their own community had to do with uh, Rohingya refugees' desire to return home. To Myanmar, to their indigenous homeland in Myanmar, and, and unsurprisingly, the vast majority of Rohingya expressed a desire to return home. And so, I think uh, in the long term, that is the ultimate solution. The Rohingya have a right to return home. They should have a right to. They should have a right to do so safely and, and in a dignified and voluntary fashion. Um, and so, you know, it's anybody's guess as to when. Uh, the situation in Myanmar will be conducive to that. It's, it's of course, not not the case right now, but I think that's a big part of the the longer term answer for the Rohingya people. I think there are a lot of a lot of different pieces to this puzzle. Accountability for mass atrocity crimes is one of them. So long as the generals in Myanmar and their uh, and their henchmen are, you know, essentially roaming free. Um, the risk of, of more genocidal attacks is ever present. And so uh, more resources have to be put into holding the perpetrators of these crimes accountable. Governments need to do more to support that. Um, but there's, there's uh, you know, unfortunately, given the vast scale of violations that the community is facing, um, you know, there's no silver bullet, unfortunately. So there, there does have to be more attention to, to the plight of the Rohingya from, from various governments. Um, and, uh, and, and I will say too, the Rohingya civil society has been extraordinary throughout all of this. Um, we're working routinely with, uh, regularly with, uh, Rohingya human rights defenders who are, uh, whether they're in Myanmar, whether they're in Bangladesh or whether they're part of the diaspora, they're working day and night to achieve justice and accountability and a more rights respecting future for their community. And so we would encourage, uh, whether it's donors or other human rights groups or, or, or others to, to do whatever they can to support Rohingya civil society. They will be an indispensable part of a more rights-respecting future for the Rohingya peoples. So Joe, I think out of all the issues that we've covered, this one's one of the more tragic ones, for me at least. I think when the activist in Cox's Bazaar talked about how his grandfather and father 
struggled all all their life in this issue and all he wants is for his kids not to have to go through that same experience it, it does fill me with a sense of hopelessness because what options are there for them you know our guest matthew did talk about some of the more legal options out there um with the icc but i'm not sure how effective those are going to be especially with the current regime in myanmar um but what impressions did you have joe did you think that there is a viable solution out there for the rohingya in the future Still, it really is a horrific situation. Unfortunately, we look at things from the Bangladeshi side. You know, we've got a general election coming up in, in January, which the incumbent prime minister Sheikh Hasina, you know, is coming under increasing pressure at the moment. There were, there were large protests today by Bangladesh's uh, biggest opposition party, the, the BMP. Um, you know, we've seen a major crackdown, uh, thousands and thousands, about 20,000 um, politicians and supporters being abducted or arrested or charged in recent months. You know, we've seen opposition journalists and activists being arrested, which gives you an idea about how I think panics that the Hasina government is ahead of that election. Um, you know, they've been struggling to manage the country's economy. As I mentioned, they've, they've gone to the IMF. You know, there are kind of increasing allegations of corruption against the Hasina government. I think very sadly for, for the Rohingya, we're looking ahead. Certainly for the government at the moment, there are other priorities. Uh, and one would think that if Hasina and a party are, the Awami League are re-elected in January, where they, they look to strengthen their hold on power rather than addressing the Rohingya crisis immediately. And likewise, if the BNP were to, I think, surprise it when given the level of, uh, of, of crackdown they faced in recent months and come back to power again, you know, they would have other priorities. So I think certainly for me, you know, this terrible situation is not one that's going to kind of conclude or, or resolve soon, certainly in the run-up to the election in Bangladesh at least. Yeah, and I think placing it in a broader geopolitical context, you know, I do feel that, as Matthew mentioned, there's not much attention being given to the Rohingya issue. In fact, there's no one really batting for them. A lot of governments in the West that would normally support these issues, for them it's too far away and the powers in the region are not going to help out. I don't think uh, India is doing anything for the Rohingya. Um, and China doesn't seem to be in any rush to pressure Myanmar to do anything about that situation. So I think what's important at this point is, as Matthew said, to get the word out, to raise awareness in, in the West, uh, in the global development community. And as long as we have more and more people batting for them, hopefully there might be more pressure from international sources, both in Bangladesh as well as Myanmar, to treat these people a little better. Um, we've seen uh, recently with the Bangladesh election coming up, uh, I've heard from my sources in Dhaka that there's some pressure from the United States to go ahead with a free and fair election. I'm not sure how effective that's going to be, but perhaps there can be some hope if powers like the US or the EU continue putting pressure on both governments to find a long-term sustainable solution for the Rohingya crisis. Yes, just that quickly on that. Yes, the uh, Washington's announced that it will impose uh, visa bans or restrictions on uh, members of the Bangladeshi regime that, that are seen to be part of this crackdown on uh, opposition policies, which is quite a hardline approach, you'd think, from from the US with increasing Chinese influence in, in Bangladesh. And Washington's quite cautious about pushing Dakar any closer to Beijing. So it's a quite a strong, strong policy there, I think, from from the US, really. But yeah, I mean, that's. Fortunately, all we've got time for uh, this week or on this week's episode of Beyond the Indus. Thank you so much to everyone uh, for tuning in. And as always, thank you to our, our guests this week. Um, and we look forward to having you on board in a fortnight's time. Stay safe and bye.